my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Paul Neum, and who is an associate professor of dermatology and pathology at the University of Washington and the Fred Hutchinson's Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington. He sees patients with complex skin cancers. His lab does translational and clinical research on Merkel cell carcinoma, as well as on how cells respond to UV damage and how caffeine can protect against skin cancer, possibly when used topically. Please help me welcome Dr. Neum. Greetings. Sounds like the mic's working great. Uh, my name is Paul Neum. Actually, uh, a happy little update um, compared to uh, what, what we were mentioning. Well, let me see. Do I really use this as a laser pointer? Or no, that's the, OK. I'm sorry about this. I'm sure you guys have seen this before. So there's the laser. All right. So I have to choose a screen to point at. Anyway, despite the fact that I don't know how to use a laser pointer, I got promoted a week or two ago to be a professor. So hey, that's a, that's a happy little update. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I actually treat a lot of skin cancer patients with Dr. David Bird, who's going to be our next uh, speaker. And uh, we, we team up in a lot of cases of Merkel cell carcinoma. Now, I know this is not a cancer you're going to see all the time. So that's not the reason for this lecture. The reason for this lecture is when you see it, or when the, the, the rest of your team, somebody sees it, just keep in mind it's a bit of a different beast. And it needs some special attention. And uh, I want to point you towards resources today and tell you some amazing stories about this cancer, because it's really an unusual one. For example, the fact that only a few years ago it was learned that there's a virus that's driving most of these, and our immune system plays a huge role in fighting this cancer. So those are a couple of the flavors that I'll, uh, I'd like to take you through. And, I, as a physician scientist, would say that this has been a really exciting, fun story to work on in the past few years in that it's really exploding in terms of knowledge and I think in terms of our opportunities to treat it better. So I hope I can share some of that enthusiasm uh, and the reasons for that excitement with you. So why is this cancer important at all? Well, it's a nasty one, somewhere around three times more likely to kill a given patient than is melanoma, nearly a half, probably about 40 to a little bit more percent of patients will, who have one of these small things will actually end up dying of it. Uh, its reported incidence has increased a lot, although it remains an uncommon cancer. It's, it's similar in incidence now to um, dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans or cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. But in dermatology, we see this less because a lot of them bypass dermatology, and they go straight to um, medical oncology or surgical oncology or something like that. But it's a similar frequency of, of those diseases that we, we see more often. Uh, then the optimal treatment for this cancer is really different than other cancers. There's one study in Australia. You, just, you can't just simply cut this out, which is, is what my point is. There's one study in Australia of 38 patients who had relatively narrow excisions of their Merkel cell carcinoma, and 100% of them recurred. Not good. And it needs, it, needs some other, it needs some other thinking and treatment. And then, of course, as I mentioned, there's a fascinating new virus that, that is helping us understand uh, why we get this cancer uh, and um, I think how we're going to be able to treat it more uh, effectively and, and rationally in the future. So three flavors today. One is um, a little bit about the cancer and about what it looks like under the microscope and its management. Then uh, this is a, a fascinating question because you may not realize it, but if you wipe your brow now, 
you will have Merkel, poly Merkel cell polyomavirus on your fingertips. It's on our normal skin routinely. It's on the doorknobs. It's all over the place. It was discovered four years ago. And we are not aware of it doing anything bad except one in 3,000 people causing this nasty cancer. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about why we think it can be so common and yet so rarely lead to anything that we notice. Uh, and then, and then uh, tackle a little bit about um, uh, rational therapy into the future. So this is a picture of Friedrich Merkel um, in terms of what is a Merkel cell. Uh, he drew this picture in 1875. Just think about that using a microscope in, you know, 130-some years ago. This is a picture of the uh, dermal epidermal junction from a rat paw. And uh, he drew this picture, and you can see these are Merkel cells. They're at extremely high density in uh, our fingertips and in rat fingertips and in, in the, um, the whisker areas of, of, of rats and, and other animals. And he said 130 years ago, here's a more modern picture, but you know, linking up to nerves, he said, I bet that these are essential, you know, uh, th these are touch cells, and uh, they're, they're involved in the sensation of touch. And he was right. This was proven just a couple of years ago through elegant genetic experiments in mice where they knocked these cells out and found that the mouse could not touch and sense normally. So um, they're involved in, in our, our sensation of touch, and uh, you know, what are these bumps? Um, a, a papule on the back of a finger, a nodule on the abdomen, a plaque on the buttock, and a tumor on the ear. Those are all Merkel cell carcinomas. Uh, and this is what happens when, when those cells or cells that are very similar to the normal Merkel cell in the skin becomes malignant. Uh, those are typically called, historically, firm papules or nodules that are often red or purple. What a useless piece of information. So we, we, we said, well, maybe we could try and find something a little bit more, more useful, or at least you know, characterize what these things look like. Um, so we, we uh, looked in 195 patients that we had um, cared for um, and who, on whom we had data about their, uh, their Merkel cell carcinoma presentation and found uh, a couple little letters here, um, A-E-I-O-U, that were very prevalent, very common in, at the time of the diagnosis of the Merkel cell carcinoma. So they were asymptomatic. These bumps didn't, were not tender. You could push on them. They didn't hurt, typically. They would expand rapidly, usually doubling in a couple months. Immune compromise, this is tricky. Only 10% of Merkel patients are really immune compromised. However, that's a 16-fold overrepresentation compared to normal. So that's HIV. Chronic, lymph chronic lymphocytic leukemia, um, solid organ transplant recipient, taking T cell immune suppression, basically. So that's 16-fold overrepresented, but, uh, uh, so that's, that's why it's in there. But 90% of Merkel patients are like you and me. They say, oh, well, I don't have any problem with my immune system at all. O, o for older than 50, and UV, U for UV-exposed fair skin. So 90%, 89% of all the Merkel cell carcinomas had at least three of those features. Now. That means it's a sensitive little algorithm here, A-E-I-O-U, but it is not specific. You don't want to, of course, run around and, and, and biopsy everything that would fit a few of those characteristics. However, if you have a red, rapidly growing, non-tender lump someplace on UV-exposed skin, you know, especially if it's on somebody who's had other, other skin cancers before, it may well make sense to, to do a biopsy, not just for Merkel, but because it could be something else that might, might deserve a biopsy. 
So what did people think at the time they did the biopsy, the docs, when they did the biopsy? Um, more than half thought they were doing a biopsy on something benign, and I can tell you anecdotally, almost all our patients come in and say, I brought this to the attention of my doc, and they said, don't worry about it, it's a cyst, and boy, do you guys, as physician assistants, play a huge role, because you're listening to your patients. I mean, dermatologists too, do too, but I, I, I think you guys maybe even have, have, a, have uh, you know, even better ability to, to listen and spend some time and, and just say, well, the patient really wants this off. They say it's weird and different, and um, that can make a big difference. We certainly get a lot of these done done by non-dermatologists or, or, or physician assistants. About a third thought that they were biopsying something benign, and, and uh, about one in 10 said it was just a nodule. So this is the sites where these were. You can see the UV prevalence basically here on the face lots as compared to the sun-protected scalp, relatively few. Um, and on the uh, sun-exposed arm, much more prevalent than on the sun-protected. And an interesting point here is the dark circles are where the primary Merkel cell carcinomas arose. The open circles are where lymph nodes were found to be involved with Merkel cell carcinoma, and there was no primary. So that's about 15% of cases, sort of similar to melanoma. That can definitely present in a lymph node where the primary has gone away. So here's a thought experiment for you. Do those patients who've got nodal disease, is it better to have the primary lesion still or not? I can tell you the patients who do not have a primary lesion are running around to all their dermatologists getting every seborrheic keratosis biopsied and saying, oh my god, I cannot find the primary Merkel cell carcinoma. It's terrible. Is it better to have it or not? So just think about that for a second. And I'm, I'm telling you there's a 30% survival difference among node-positive patients who either do or don't. And it's significantly better to not have it anymore. And the primary. And we don't know for sure why, but I believe very strongly that's because the immune system saw the primary and eliminated it, and thus has a greater ability than a person who couldn't get rid of their primary and then presents with nodal disease um, for fighting off distant microscopic disease. So anyway, that's a, that's a cute little, little pearl, and the same story turns out to be true for, for melanoma as well. Better survival if the primary is gone. So there's a little you know, pearl you can pass on to your patients if they're all worried when they've got a melanoma diagnosed. Um, in, in the nodes or something else, it's actually better if the primary went, went away. So uh, this is what it looks like under the microscope. This test, cytokeratin-20, an immunohistochemical test, was developed in the early 1990s and has made a very big difference in the ability to make the diagnosis easily. It's much more straightforward to make this diagnosis now than it used to be, and that is partly why the reported incidents here, this is reported, so you can see before 1980 we had almost no cases in the country. They were being missed. This cancer was happening, but it was being missed. It was not easy to make the diagnosis. And then, then in, the, in the early 90s, it starts to really take off. And so some of this is improved ability to make the diagnosis pathologically, but a lot of this, we believe, um, heading up towards 2,000 cases per year is actually because of an increase in the relevant risk factors. And the same reason that we're seeing increases in other cancers like melanoma. This is increasing at almost the same rate as melanoma, which is pretty fast. So again, we have a lot of sun exposure in um, people with fair skin. 98% of Merkel patients have fair skin. 
uh, uh, and minimal pigmentation ability. And then immune suppression is increasing in its, in its prevalence, especially maybe chronic lymphocytic leukemia. We also see a good amount of patients with rheumatoid arthritis taking methotrexate and other, other um, maybe some biologics um, with increased incidence, as well as age over 50. Um, and that is what I want to show you in this, in this graph. There's a stunning relationship of age and Merkel cell carcinoma. So this is in red, Merkel cell carcinoma incidence as a function of age. And in blue is all cancers as a function of age. So the, the denominator is very different. This is Merkel's per million versus all cancers per 2,000. But I plotted them together so you can see the shape of the curves. So you can see that all cancers typically take off you know, 40s, 50s or something, go up, and they actually peak and fall off in the 80s and 90s. The shape of the Merkel curve is delayed by several decades, which is fascinating because the virus is on our children in daycare centers. It's all over the place. So we have decades of delay between virus exposure and cancer arising, and then this really strong cooperative relationship with age much stronger than other cancers, and it just keeps going up. And actually, as a cute little note, you know, the baby boom generation is just hitting here, and this is also part of the reason, because there's this very sharp increase in incidence here. I don't know for sure, but I strongly believe that this is related again to immunity and immune senescence in particular. The same reason that we get our varicella zoster chickenpox virus reactivating in the form of shingles when we're 50, 60, 70 years old, the T cells are pooping out, not remembering what they saw decades before so well, and I believe they're not able to def defend against this virus that's driving this cancer, and that's the relationship. It's a theory, uh, but uh, I think nothing else in my mind fits it as well. So how, does you, how do you stage a Merkel cell carcinoma patient? I won't take you through this in a lot of detail, but um, uh, the American Joint Committee on Cancer um, uh, published this um, staging system based on 5,000 Merkel cell carcinoma patients, and happily it replaced five systems that were all in place at the same time and were totally conflicting. So for those of us working in this area, this, was, this is a big improvement to have one system that we agree on. And the, the key point from this paper was pathologic nodal evaluation and that is microscopic, like a sentinel lymph node biopsy or some kind of microscopic evaluation of loads, markedly improves prognostic accuracy in this cancer and uh, serves as the basis of uh, a consensus staging system, this analysis. And interestingly, two-thirds of those 5,000 patients didn't have their nodes looked at microscopically. So that turns out to... Um, uh, be important. So we looked then um, at, at, at Merkel cell carcinoma patients and found that sure enough, when you, if you just feel the lymph nodes by palpation downstream of the, or upstream of the, of the primary lesion, um, survival is not, and you call them negative, you call the nodes negative by palpation, survival is not nearly as good, it's almost a 20% difference. Uh, as if you look in the nodes and define them as negative. And it, that, that is because there's actually a one in three false positive rate, or false negative rate, I guess is the term, of 100 patients, all of whom have nothing to feel in the lymph nodes, one in three of them will have microscopic disease from their Merkel cell carcinoma. And Dr. Bird will comment to you, I'm sure, about sentinel nodes in melanoma, but of all comers in melanoma, the average median thickness, who knows the median thickness of melanoma in the country for an invasive? 
0.6 millimeters. That median melanoma has around a one or two or three percent much lower risk of, develop, of, of having microscopic disease in the nodes. So Merkel is much more likely to have spread early. And that then uh, turns out to matter, so it's incorporated into the new staging system. It, as stage one is small, less than or equal to two centimeters, um, as compared to stage two, greater than that. And then it's broken down by, based on whether the nodes were negative microscopically or just clinically. And that, that helps quite a bit in terms of actually getting accuracy. You can see here, there's a big difference, of course, between 80% plus. We actually think that the survival um, may, be, may be better for the stage 1As than 80% as compared to 20% or less. So um, obviously, staging for this cancer, as like with, with any other, matters a lot. Uh, and then it sends the message, the fact that that's embedded into the staging system, that you should consider microscopic evaluation of the nodes So uh, when, when this diagnosis comes up. So it's definitely, just like for melanoma, it can give you much better prognostic information. Uh, not everybody cares that much about prognostic information, so that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you, you, you should always get it. But there are also significant therapeutic implications of a sentinel node biopsy. If it's positive nodal and you treat, then you markedly decrease um, recurrence in that area. And that's a, that's, that's a valuable thing to people's quality of life. So, uh, however, we don't do a sentinel node in certain cases. Um, if it wouldn't change our management, if the primary is very close to the nodes and we were going to be radiating or treating the node bed regardless, um, if we wouldn't believe a negative result, um, as Dr. Bird and I work together all the time, he'll note if, if, the, if the radioactive dye is injected very close to the draining nodes, it's very technically difficult to, um, to get at that node. So you, it's not such a valuable test in that case. Um, and then if the prognostic data isn't important for the patient. Other than that, we will often think it makes sense to, to look at the nodes microscopically. So then what is the best local therapy for this cancer? Um, uh, sometimes people ask, what's the right margin for Merkel cell carcinoma? And we, we have you know, uh, recommended margins for basal and squamous and, and, and melanoma, depending on the size and such. But I would say for Merkel cell carcinoma, that's not even the right question. The concept of Merkel cell carcinoma is so tricky because it doesn't grow contiguously as a ball it jumps locally through little lymphatics and such. So we have seen many times microscopic negative margins um, uh, progress locally um, uh, if, if radiation isn't given. So really, the right margin, I don't think there's a simple one-size-fits-all um, in terms of margin, but usually we will, we will certainly excise the primary tumor and may or may not give adjuvant radiation. So there's a subset of patients that we consider to be low enough risk that we don't need to add radiation after surgery. And those are folks that have a smallish tumor, maybe a centimeter or less. The margins are negative microscopically. Lymphovascular invasion, which is literally seeing cancer cells inside the vessels in the tumor. They are on the off-ramp or on-ramp or whatever your perspective is of getting out of the, uh, getting out of the tumor and heading into the blood. Um, and that doubles at least risk of distant disease and, and, uh, and, and disease progression, then prof no profound immune suppression, as we talked about before, and that their sentinel lymph node biopsy was negative. So we get good prognosis patients like this, maybe one in four times or something like that. And in the last couple of years, David and I have, have 
you know, said, well, we're going to stop there with our radiation oncologist, Dr. Parvathanani, and we're not going to give more radiation. We think we can probably spare that. And amazingly, among those 14 very low-risk patients, actually three had local recurrences right inside the field that would have been radiated. Fortunately, they were all salvaged by radiation. They have not recurred. It probably doesn't have a big implication for their risk of progressing elsewhere. So we did save 11 patients from radiation, which sometimes the side effects can be quite significant. So what then is the data? You know, we, we think this is about as this is about as uh, you know, uh, narrow a field as we feel comfortable with. We're probably not going to narrow it down much more. Um, and uh, then we, we do recommend adjuvant in a lot of cases. What is that data? Well, there's about a 3.7 times higher risk of having recurrence near the primary if you only give surgery, that's this lower curve here, among 1,200 cases than if you add radiation on top. And similarly, in terms of controlling the lymph nodes, it's a three times higher risk of having a recurrence if you don't give radiation. Now, it's important to note, this is not the same thing as curing the patient. This is stopping it from coming back locally, stopping it from coming back in the lymph nodes. That's very valuable, but it's not the same thing as a cure. And the data for cure are more iffy. There's, there's some suggestions that adding radiation improves survival, long-term survival, but it's not, a, it's not a huge effect. So, But at any rate, most patients really do want to have their, their, their cancer treated effectively, and that usually involves both surgery and radiation. So, then there's the option that radiation is darn effective in most cases for this cancer, and when, when could you treat with radiation only? So actually the Australians really like doing this, and they sometimes think that surgery is done right after the biopsy. No sentinel node biopsy, no wide excision. Um, and we certainly do it when the tumor is inoperable, when, we, when the patient says, I would rather die than have my ear cut off in the case of this woman who was uh, uh, in her 80s and had some cardiac issues and this was thought to be a squamous cell carcinoma, it turned to be a Merkel cell and she said, Doc, I, I don't want my ear cut off, I'd rather die. And so we treated her with radiation monotherapy here three weeks in, it was inflamed and such and, and then afterwards it went away to the point that I had to flip her head around and say, well, which side was it on? And she said, oh, yeah, doc, you can't see it at all. It dried up. It turned into a raisin. I saved it in a napkin for you, but then I lost it in my car. <laughs> so that's all that was left was this raisin in the bottom of her car, back seat or whatever. Um, and so she did great. Two years after that, no, no recurrences and, um, and died of an unrelated cause and uh, kept her ear and was happy. So... Um, I'm not going to go through all of Merkel cell carcinoma management. It's tricky, and it may be a long time before you see a patient. It might change and such, but this is something I think it's very worthwhile. You probably have heard of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, free online management, um, uh, detailed guidelines, updated every year, nccn.org. You can get it for melanoma. You can get it for Merkel cell carcinoma. You can get it for non-melanoma skin cancers, including dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans, um, and they're very good, and they represent um, best practice management across all of the major cancer centers in the country. So that's where I point you to, and it'll be updated um, every year. However, the other option for you or for your patients is just Google Merkel cell carcinoma. And we have made a, a website maybe 10 years ago now that's now actually the number one hit on Google or Bing, so you'll get it quickly, and it's, and it's information for patients and their physicians, and it's written in ways that patients can understand 
Docs who aren't expert in this can understand. Usually, this is a surprise diagnosis after a cyst was taken off. No one expects it. And the patient's never heard of it. It's usually the patient's daughter or son who does a Google search and, and finds out, well, gee, maybe a sentinel node should be considered, these kinds of things. So this is, this, we keep this updated, and it's got a lot of uh, relevant references and such. So on to how does this cancer arise? So I mentioned in 2008, there's a brand new human cancer virus. Now, how many viruses do you think have been known to cause cancer? 50, 100, it's six, only six, amazingly. And so this, in 2008, made a big bunch of news, even though Merkel cell carcinoma was something most people never heard of, because it was a pretty clear seventh, basically, that is directly linked to, to cancer. And um, Patrick Moore and Yuan Chang, now in Pittsburgh, used to be in New York. They are the dynamic duo that found the Kaposi sarcoma herpes virus in the early 1990s, and this is their second enormous finding of another virus um, that causes cancer. They worked on this for almost 10 years um, in one way or another, and uh, uh, they found that it was, this virus was integrated in a clonal way, which means the viral DNA was stuck into some random chromosome in the cancer in the exact same place in all of the cancer cells in a patient. And from different patient to different patient, the integration site was different. But what that tells you is that the integration event happened very early in, in the genesis of that cancer in the patient. And that turns out to be, we're, we're quite sure now, true, and, and it just in, integrates randomly. And the, the integration site isn't the big deal. It's the fact that the cancer, the, the virus is actually making proteins that, that cause the, uh, the cells to divide. And um, this virus, as I mentioned already, is incredibly common. So it's on most of us, if we just take a cotton swab, it's interesting, if you cotton swab, you'll get the virus off. If you rub a bunch, you wash, the number of viral particles goes way down. So it's in the sloughing skin, and again, no implications. This has got any danger um, for any disease, really, besides Merkel cell carcinoma. So how does this happen? Super common virus leading to a rare cancer. So I'll tell you in terms of the virus, and I'll tell you in terms of the immune system. And we know a few concrete answers about why this is a rare cancer and a common virus. So the, normally the virus just hangs out free copies of the viral genome floating around and replicating in the cytoplasm of a cell. Presumably, I mean, we know this is a lot in our epidermis. There's some in the gut as well of this virus. But rarely, in an accident, the virus does not want to have happened it will integrate directly into the host genome. And then, fascinatingly, and this can definitely be accelerated by UV. So sunlight can definitely accelerate these mutational events. And a rare second event that neither the virus nor the body wants to have happen is that the oncoprotein, the critical part called the large T or small t antigen that drives the cell to divide takes out the retinoblastoma tumor suppressor and makes the cell go into the cell cycle, that critical oncoprotein has to be cut in half by a second mutation. So you can see why. This is very rare. And that mutation basically leaves the left half of the protein, which actually causes the cell to, to, to go into the cell cycle by taking out the retinoblastoma tumor suppressor, and delete the right half, which the job of the right half of that oncoprotein is to make hundreds of extra copies of the virus, DNA, 
And if that happens, then, what, then the cell will die very quickly. The cellular genomic fidelity machinery says, hey, chromosome 17 is making 25 copies of itself without permission. I'm killing myself. That would normally happen. And, uh, and this, these two rare events have to happen, and that is why we believe that this is a, a rare cancer in terms of genetic integration events. Then in terms of immunity, I think this is why this is such a common cancer as we get older and not common when we're younger, is we have a lovely immune response, I'll tell you about it in a minute, both in terms of antibodies and T cells to fight this virus and fight its proteins, and that peters out as we get older. So talking about that immune response, um, and one of the, the cool things um, that has uh, come up through a collaboration um, with Denise Galloway's lab at the Fred Hutch is that antibodies to that oncoprotein have become a very new and useful biomarker that we've actually used to detect this cancer coming back. So we really have a, a, a remarkable handle on this cancer because of the virus. So antibodies to the Merkel cell polyomavirus T antigen, oncoproteins, reflect tumor burden in Merkel cell carcinoma patients. What does that mean? All right, so the virus has conceptually two pieces that you need to think about. One is its wall, called a capsid, made of multiple copies of a protein called viral protein one. We have antibodies to that. Most of us in the room have those antibodies if we were to look today. Merkel patients tend to have a little bit more, but, but um, uh, most, most of us have them, so it's not a very useful test. Um, however, Photoshopped in here with the little red is the genome of the virus and as opposed to the actual protein. And this encodes that oncoprotein, which is only expressed temporarily in infected cells or in cells that I have Merkel cell, that have you know, undergone this cancer process and are, uh, and are churning out this oncoprotein. So the T antigen antibodies are very different than the antibodies to the coat protein, which are all over the virus particle itself. The T antigen antibodies are present in less than 1% of us in the room today, and about half of all newly diagnosed Merkel cell carcinoma patients. And fascinatingly, although the capsid protein called the VP1, again, those, these are 10 different Merkel patients, all in different colors, plotted as a function of days from the time of their diagnosis. You can see flat lines here. There's no change in the number of antibodies between the time you diagnosed and, and, and um, uh, you know, later. Whereas here, for the antibodies against the T antigen, small t in this case, they fall really rapidly on this logarithmic scale. After we treat the cancer effectively at, you know, soon after diagnosis until we get our next blood draw. The fascinating thing is, as soon as the cancer starts coming back, and we develop a metastasis, the, this, the antibody levels go up a lot, and vice versa, when we go back to no evidence of disease, NED, we treat it, they fall back. So this is exciting. There are not a lot of cancers where there are unique antigens that we can track. And we actually, I will tell you the story in a little while of one of the patients. We've, we've, we've found recurrences in quite a number of patients and um, uh, then gone on to work them up and such. In one of those patients, um, this, this was a very early and useful marker. So uh, just to summarize that, uh, we have these antibodies that are now a, a useful test. They appear to be among patients who have them, 
at the time of their diagnosis. Remember, half of patients don't have any of these antibodies, so it's not a useful test for them. If you don't have the virus in your tumor, of course, you're not going to expect antibodies, and some of the patients who do have the virus don't make antibodies for reasons we don't know. However, if you have antibodies at the time of diagnosis, it's a really good test, and the nicest thing is when we can draw the blood and say there's no evidence of the cancer coming back, and it's dirt cheap compared to a PET scan, and it's actually, we believe, more sensitive and specific. But we're working on, you know, characterizing that and proving it. And it's now available for free on a research basis, um, and patients can sign up for that for free um, on our website. Um, and soon will be a clinical test at the University of Washington and available wherever. So um, bottom line in terms of the virus and this cancer, Merkel cell polyomavirus, that's the little abbreviation for this virus, often plays a role, but it's not necessary or sufficient. So it's not necessary because at least 20% of Merkel cell carcinomas don't have the virus, and it's not sufficient because all of us are not going to get Merkel cell carcinoma, and yet we have it on our skin. And also, the virus only plays a really small, if any, effect on outcome. That's controversial in the various studies. We have not seen virus-positive versus virus-negative patients doing better or worse. So we asked um, what really matters in terms of Merkel cell carcinoma survival. And uh, that was led by um, Kelly Paulson, a very talented MD-PhD student, and David Bird um, was a, a big collaborator helping to get us fresh tissue. Um, and then we did a good old-fashioned mRNA gene array analysis, something that I've done a few times before and seen done many times and never gotten anything useful from. And here we did. I thought, well, maybe we'll find something associated with a tumor suppressor or an oncogene. No, I was wrong again. What turned out to matter, and I won't take you through the details here, but there's 50,000 genes going across here, 50,000 gene probes, and 35 patients here. And the patients who did well were on the bottom. The patients who did poorly and progressed are on the top. And purple is high expression of a gene. So the bottom line is you're looking for purple at the bottom, which means genes highly expressed in patients who survived. If you want to find out what's associated with doing well. And again, not a tumor suppressor, not an oncoprotein. These were all associated with immune response, immune defense, defense process, all immunity, with p-values of 10 to the minus 100. So it's a lot of zeros before your p. Uh, and so it's clearly associated. And then, but then you know, the immune system is a complicated beast. Uh, and so what turns out to, to be was that really the good outcomes were associated with CD8-type responses. The chemokines, extravasation genes, Th1, things that push you towards having effective cell-mediated CD8 killer-type function and away from antibody-type responses. Here are these, um, the effector genes like the granzymes that actually pop the target cell open, um, and the CD8 genes themselves. So we then could ask, well, are CD8 T cells really predictive of survival in this cancer? And we looked at an independent set of 146 Merkel cell carcinomas, um, and it's, it was very hard to get these. We had a big team of people to get these from over 100 different pathology labs across the country, but it was easy to then stain them with CD8. You can do that on archival tissue very easily and ask what is the prognosis effect. And we saw three patterns of these killer CD8 infiltrating T cells. One was that there were none absent. I don't show you a picture of that. Another is that they were stalled at the border between the cancer and the surrounding stroma or the surrounding tissues. So that's shown here with the brown dots indicating CD8 around the tumor. In the tumor, there's very few, and those that are there are associated with a vessel 
inside the cancer. And those don't count if they're right, just right next to the vessel. But here is an intratumoral um, infiltration pattern of CD8s, and you can see them shotgunned through there, the brown, all the way through. And what did that matter in terms of survival? Night and day. CD8 Re, uh, you know, responsive, good, good infiltration, 26 patients, not a single one died of Merkel cell carcinoma. And of those that either had stalled, cancer, stalled CD8s around the cancer or none, their survival was like you expect for Merkel, not, not so great. And this was really striking because it didn't matter what stage you presented with. I talked to you about how important stage is. It's kind of a no-duh thing. Of course, you present with metastatic disease, it's bad. Here, the one guy who presented with metastatic disease who had good CD8 infiltration is alive. Um, those that didn't obviously didn't do as well. And most impressively for nodal, here are those that, that um, had presented with nodal disease but had good killer T cell infiltration, 100% survival, and about 30% for those who didn't. So in some ways, this kind of makes a lot of sense, that CD8s are important. And here's, here's just to nail that a little bit more, a completely separate cohort of 150 Merkel cell carcinoma patients from a Kaiser Permanente cohort that we collaborated with. Same pattern. Good infiltration, 100% survival. Less infiltration, less and less, less good survival. And it didn't matter what stage you were at in terms of this effect. So, but it makes sense, right? We have a virus. Viruses get attacked and fought and recognized by the immune system. Here's a cartoon to remind you of your immunology um, where we have simply the type of T cell that recognizes a virus infected cell, like a CD8 T cell, and here it's T cell receptor, billion different flavors of a T cell receptor that we can make in our body. And any given T cell has thousands of copies of the same T cell receptor because that's what its job is, to recognize that one antigen. Here is that viral peptide sitting in the, glowing in yellow here, sitting in the, in the groove of the class one MHC, which is, or HLA molecule, um, major histocompatibility complex. Uh, this is what any infected cell uses to advertise the fact that it's got an infection or it's got something weird in it. And this is how this is recognized. So that takes me to what, you know, that, the rest of this and talk, focusing on rational therapy is going to be thinking about how does this happen? How can we do better in treating these patients? Uh, and, and why is, is this cancer able to evade the immune system whenever we see it? So this class 1 MHC molecule is required for viral presentation, and some of our array data, our mRNA array data, had already told us it's hiding. The class 1 MHC is down on the surface of these cells, and that turns out to be the case in more than half of these. So about, about half of them have nice HLA or class 1 MHC. That means they are advertising what's inside of them to the immune system. Here, a little over a third have lost this in a good, in major areas of the cancer, and one in six are no longer advertising at all. This is stroma here. This is like surrounding tissue that's, that's showing up with the class one MHC. Impossible for the immune system to see the virus hiding inside these, these cells. And our immune collaborator said, um, David Cole said, God, that's depressing. How can we possibly improve the therapy if there's no target to be seen on the cancer? But it turns out that 
this, this kind of down regulation often is, is present in a lot of cancers and can be reversed. So we, we asked if it was reversible and sure enough, good old interferon, the stuff that makes us have shakes and chills when we've got any viral infection, one of its key jobs is to upregulate class 1 MHC and increase the response against, the immune, against that virus by the immune system. And sure enough, here in, in a, a number of different cell lines of, of Merkel cell carcinoma, we could markedly increase the class 1 MHC um, uh, using um, interferon gamma. We also did it with interferon beta, alpha, it doesn't really matter. They all, have, they all share this effect in a dose-responsive way. But so what? You can do that in the lab. How about in a person? So here is uh, a study um, that uh, was published in a Japanese journal about a 62-year-old Japanese woman who had about eight different metastases of Merkel cell carcinoma, mostly on one arm. The largest one was excised, and the others were only injected with interferon. And useful for us, halfway through that interferon uh, treatment period, local uh, intralesional interferon, she had a biopsy of one of the remaining ones. And uh, she received then no other treatment, no adjuvant chemotherapy, no radiation, um, no wide surgical excision of the remaining ones, and then went eight years without recurring. And how did that happen? In the paper, they don't really talk about that. They just say, ah, maybe the interferon killed the cancer. And Kelly, a, a very talented graduate student, said, I think it was an immune response. So we, we called them up, got the slides from their patient um, in a collaboration, and here's what the biopsy looked like at the start. So here's, here's the H&E here's the image of the cancer with some stroma in the center. Here's the cytokeratin 20. You can see those little dots that, that mark Merkel cell very nicely. And then here's, here's the stroma, lots of class 1 MHC on it. And then here's CD8. If you're straining and you can't see any brown, you're right. There's not a single CD8 T cell to be seen there. And then we have the biopsy 19 days into interferon. And what has happened? There was absolutely no class 1 MHC on the tumor, and there's just loads of it here, and lots of infiltrating CD8 T cells. This is how we think this woman then is effectively cured. Her immune system got turned on the right way. So Mer Merkel cell carcinoma, I don't think there's a single drug that's officially approved for it, but, but certainly interferon's not. However, it's FDA approved, and we could use it in an off-label way um, in, in patients, and so we did this. Here's a patient that David and I took care of who had a Merkel on her finger, uh, and uh, we gave her 13 days of interferon in a so-called neoadjuvant manner. If you don't know what that word means, it just means totally added on top of. It means we didn't take away anything else. We, we did everything else. We did the sentinel node, we did, we did the radiation, we did the surgery and everything. And David will remember the night before he did, he did the surgery, I called him up, I sent him an email, I said, oh my gosh, this woman has developed enormous lymph node upstream of, of her Merkel cell carcinoma. We've done something terrible. And should we still do the sentinel node? Do you want to just do a completion node dissection? And David says, yeah, take it easy. We'll just do a sentinel node. It'll be OK. Sure enough, gets the sentinel node out. It's chalk filled with activated lymphocytes. Thank goodness, not a single Merkel cell carcinoma cell there. And she was having what she should have had, which is a wonderful local and, and regional response to this. So what did it look like under the microscope? Here's before um, and, and after. She's got happy nodules of cancer here below the, um, below the, the dermis, here in the dermis, and here's a, here's a blow up here, um, a, a, little, a little higher magnification, um, happy nodules of cancer. And here afterwards, all of this, this weird pink color, 
is dead cancer. There's some nodules still that are alive 13 days into interferon, but a lot of it's dead. And uh, here's the blow up of all this necrotic cancer. And interferon uh, effects in terms of class 1 MHC, remember this is what the T cells are going to be able to see. Most of these cells are very low on class 1 MHC beforehand. There's some expression. And then afterwards, it's screaming hot. So very visible to the immune system. And sure enough, not a single CD8 T cell here as compared to loads of them here. So we've now treated you know, um, uh, about uh, 10 or 12 or so patients um, with this approach. And um, we've had a, a, a lot of good responses. Some of them have had disease progression. And uh, so we don't think this is going to be the thing to use by itself. We've actually had the single best luck when we do this combined with a single zap of radiation afterwards, which I'm not going to go into today, but it's very immune stimulating to do one dose as compared to a whole bunch of doses because the subsequent doses kill the infiltrating T cells. So one dose will knock the cancer down and actually upregulate um, immunity. So that combination has been doing very, very well um, for us. But in terms of you know, moving towards immune therapy, yes, we've got intralesional beta interferon. I just came a few minutes ago from giving a remarkable treatment to a patient um, where we injected plasma DNA, so naked DNA, to make the interleukin-12 cytokine. So again, that codes for the interleukin-12. I just injected it into the lesion, put in six needles connected to a fancy electric machine, pressed a little foot pedal. Patient said, ow for one second, because electricity got shot through those needles. And then the uh, DNA goes into the cancer cells and is expressed as a little come and find me and kill me signal from, uh, uh, from those cancer cells. And um, this is now recruiting. And so far, we've having some nice results. He's, he, he's, he's had you know, several people having nice results. Uh, and we think that's the right kind of way to turn on the immune system. But what I'd like to spend the last few minutes is, uh, talking to you about is really the dream of really rationally, directly treating this, this cancer. So towards cellular immune therapy or turning on just the right kinds of, of, of T cells. So let me just remind you, here's a structure of the virus in terms of its uh, uh, genetics and such. And only a piece of it, this little section here, is persistently expressed in the cancer. So that's really convenient. It's dinky. It's 400, less than 400 amino acids. It's really tiny. So we could make a bunch of little pieces of the virus and ask in the blood of patients or in the tissue of patients, do your T cells uh, recognize little pieces of this virus, those peptides, exactly, that would sit in the, in the class 1 MHC? We can look in the blood and in the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. And they are um, quite enhanced in the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, about 40 times more prevalent in, in the cancer than in the blood generally. And just ask, you know, if you see this peptide, Mr. T-cell, do you wake up and make interferon? Um, that's the classic sign of a T-cell waking up. And uh, we published then the first 26 of these guys here in red are, are 26 of these that are in this region that's persistently expressed. And then we could make this cool tool which maybe you probably haven't heard of. There'd be no reason for you necessarily to hear of it. But it's called an MHC peptide tetramer. And what it is is a floating reagent that can bind to T cells. So it's basically this HLA or MHC molecule with the peptide stuck in it, made in four copies and with a little fluorescent doodad on it. So you can mark one in a billion T cells in terms of their specificity for 
asking the question, do you recognize this class 1 MHC peptide? And the cool thing about that is you can just do that straight out of the blood, or you, 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 can, you can ask how active are those T cells, how many of them are there, and such. So we did that. In patients who had this particular HLA type, we had uh, eight patients who had that HLA type, and most of them had exactly this kind of T cell fighting the cancer, presumably. As compared to 10 people who had, 10 like people like you and me who had the same HLA type but didn't have Merkel cell carcinoma, none of them had that specific T cell. So we could then, you know, extract these out of the blood and, and um, do all kinds of cool things with them, but it raises the question first, well, wait a sec, you have this cancer, but you've got T cells that can recognize and kill it. What, what's going on? So, you know, why do you have virus, you know, uh, specific T cells if, if, and, and, and then still develop this cancer? So again, one reason we believe, we think there's a lot of reasons, but one reason is this sort of loss of class 1 MHC. So the T cells are targetless. They have nothing to see. Uh, and so, you know, it's very important to be able to upregulate um, the, the, the class 1 MHC. And we'll come back to that again. Radiation can do that and interference can do it. And now I want to tell you a story. This is a story of another patient that David and I took care of, a guy from uh, uh, Texas who we call case number 447. Um, and this is really fun for a, a physician scientist because we're integrating how the antibodies work, how the T cells work, and how we're going to, uh, you know, evade, you know, undo the evasion in terms of class 1 MHC downregulation. So this all happened on the course of... Uh, 18 months, and we're tracking the disease status, and we're tracking how the research was progressing. So David saw this patient with us, got a piece of the skin, gave us a little bit of it, and uh, uh, Jayshree and, and Olga in my lab grew out some T cells that they found were specific to the virus. Then this guy had really low risk disease, one centimeter lesion on the, on the hip, negative sentinel lymph node biopsy, recommendations are no scans. But we were doing our blood test anyway. And sure enough, he went down in terms of his antibodies to the T antigen. But then instead of keeping going down and going to zero, which is what we like, it stayed stable and then it actually went up and we were afraid it was gonna go up a lot more. So at that point, even though it wasn't part of the recommendations, we got a scan and sure enough, he had a three centimeter new pet avid glucose eating metastasis right near his pancreas. And he was totally asymptomatic, feeling fine, and we said, hey, maybe we can do something that's specific. We have all these tools, including we've grown out his specific T cells, and Cassian Yi and Ode Chapuis, who are at the, at the Fred Hutch, had a protocol already in place for cancer, where you use cancer-specific T cells. We just had to substitute a couple words and write a slightly new um, uh, protocol, and within three months, we grew up 23 billion antigen-specific T cells, had FDA and, uh, and IRB approvals. Um, during those same three months, he developed three new, uh, you know, two new adjacent tumors, um, but he was still asymptomatic, and then, and then we infused the T cells here. Now, I just want to tell you a tiny bit about those T cells. How did we make them? How did, how did Cassian and, and Ode make them and such? Well, here's a... Here's a Here's a little scheme of a person, and, and we get a bunch of blood from them using leukophoresis, lots of T cells, and one in a thousand of this guy's T cells was specific for the cancer, for the virus, but it was in a coma. 
You take those T cells out and you give them the peptide and they did not respond at all. They were dysfunctional. We think we know why now, but they were dysfunctional. Um, and so that partly explains why, why he couldn't, he couldn't um, uh, you know, fight this cancer better. But we grew those T cells up then, woke them up, enriched them immensely by putting in peptide in, their own, in the patient's own dendritic cells um, and grew them up several hundredfold and then used that fancy tetramer tool to sort five million of these virus-specific T cells and grew those up in two weeks to be 23 billion T cells, almost all of which were very active and capable of killing a target cell. And that's what we infused. But you recall, this guy had, this is actually a picture of his tumor. That's his HLA. He's largely targetless for the T cells. Nothing to see for the T cells. So we needed to wake those up um, somehow with preconditioning before giving the infusion. And one of the ways that we did it was to actually put an endoscope down, do a biopsy to make absolutely sure that this thing was a Merkel cell, which it, which it was, and then on the same, at the same time as the biopsy, spritz in a little bit of interferon beta to reverse that hiding um, that, uh, of, of the, of the uh, class 1 MHC. And the other time before we infused T cells, we gave a single dose of radiation, which as you recall can also upregulate the class 1 MHC. And then, I won't belabor this, but we had beautiful persistence and function in the patient's blood and, and, and body. Um, so normally there's one in a thousand. It went up to, a, well, first one in 10, but then it stayed at one in a hundred blood cells of the CD8 type were specific to the virus. They were having babies like crazy, but at baseline they weren't, they weren't proliferating, no key 67, and then, um, then they, were, they stayed up. They were self-proliferating basically, and they would function. When we took them out at the baseline, again, they were in a coma, and here then they're, they're active when we give them the, the, the peptide, the, the piece of the virus that they're supposed to recognize they, they, they would function. So this is then going to be tricky for me, but um, I'm going to try and activate this. So this is, there we go. This is what this guy looked like in terms of his PET CT scan at baseline. So you'll recall that, you know, glucose gets taken up in a lot of normal places like the brain and the heart, but here were a number of uh, these, these Merkel cell carcinoma metastases. And then we gave uh, the two infusions here um, in September and October. And then uh, after those two infusions, this is what he looked like. a lot smaller. And most importantly, now it's 400 some days since he had his first metastasis. He is not, as of a couple weeks ago when we got a scan, developed a new metastasis during that whole period. And we've looked formally at our patients and the median time between first metastasis and next new metastasis is 200 days. So we don't know for sure that we've done something, but we, we, we think it's looking like that and that the T cells are probably what's keeping this from progressing elsewhere. Uh, so that's obviously exciting. Um, and uh, these guys uh, markedly decreased in size. And let me show you the, the sizes here. These are the plot of the three different tumor sizes. There's red, green, and blue um, shown in colors here before and after treatment. And two of them, the red guy and the blue guy, have gone to be and maintained 
undetectable on scans. The green guy has had some ups and downs, and he just recently got a single dose of radiation again, and, and he's, he's feeling fine. So um, you know, we, we've got challenges, but um, this is certainly very exciting. Uh, so what's next in terms of um, uh, this kind of T-cell treatment? We've gotten some money. We can, we, can, uh, we can treat a few more patients with this approach, working very hard to write a grant so that we can treat um, a, a larger number and, and in a real phase one, two um, type of T-cell uh, trial. Um, we think that this cancer is really uh, a model for a lot of other cancers. I think a lot of other cancers are evading the immune system as well, but we don't have the tools to be able to see them with these, like we've got these tricks with the, the virus hiding inside that makes, it, makes our job actually a lot easier. So um, uh, we are getting a larger number, we can treat a larger number of patients now um, based on that the, uh, uh, Tetramer tool that I told you about. We have more of those tools. And um, I'd just like to now thank the people that um, uh, uh, especially led the clinical things. I mentioned Cassian and Ode, um, who were inv involved in the clinical trial. David Cole, very helpful in figuring out the virus. Um, and Denise Galloway, in terms of the antibody studies that I, I, I talked about. And, um, uh, David Bird, we've already talked about, and you'll see him shortly, and, and then a wonderful team of people um, and funding sources from the National Cancer Institute and the American Cancer Society. So thanks very much. It sounds like you're advocating Sentinel no biopsy for all Merkel cells. Is that pretty much what I'm hearing you say? Well, with those exceptions that, um, uh, you know, clearly it improves prognosis, but uh, there are some patients where we don't do it, and that's where the patient doesn't care about the prognostic information, or we might not believe it, um, uh, or we're going to be treating that node bed anyway. But outside of those settings, we usually, we'll usually discuss it. I think a one in three chance that the node is involved microscopically where it feels uninvolved clinically, that's a pretty compelling argument. You said that you thought that, uh, that you feel that it's definitely related to UV exposure. Do you think that uh, the tanning booth phenomenon mm -hmm. that's been going on for 20 years is going to have an effect on this like it has had on melanoma? Yes. Um, for the relatively few patients that we know have had burns or significant tanning exposure, um, they often do occur on areas where the tanning bed exposure happened, but they wouldn't have been out sunning, like the buttock, for example. Um, so I'm reasonably sure that, that tanning is, is, is very capable of contributing to this. However, in terms of you know, science-wise, it's kind of like melanoma. This cancer can arise, I believe, where this, there has not been sun exposure. Um, you don't have to have it, it's just that it is the usual way to, to lead to the cancer. Good. Well, there's a couple minutes then before um, Dr. Bird.